The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Welcome, everybody. Special welcome to all of our new audio podcast subscribers. Record week. Uh, Yesterday was the best day the audio podcast has ever had. Uh, Unbelievable. And want to welcome everybody who is carrying the show around with them in their pocket, I guess, as I call it. Um, We have so much to talk about. And because there's been so much to talk about, we really have not spent as much time as we should be spending on coronavirus. And I would be doing a disservice to you if I didn't do that today. And remember, Donald Trump said that there would be no more talk of coronavirus on November 4th because it was merely political. Trump said everything was going to open on November 4th. Trump said there would be no more discussions of an urgent pandemic on November 4th. Of course, it's been the exact opposite, in fact. And Joe Biden has fortunately immediately formed a coronavirus task force, which has already met. We have continued to talk about it and coronavirus is completely out of control. There's there's no other way to say it. It's completely outrageous, dystopian numbers when you look at them. And this administration is done. So our approach going in is if we don't do something and if governors don't do something until Joe Biden is inaugurated, Trump is done. Trump is in a fragile emotional state, as Philip Rucker will later tell us he is done with the virus. Now, meanwhile, the United States hit a record number of hospitalizations this week. We passed one million new cases in just 10 days, the first 10 days of November. This is exploding. And the first two spikes in April and July, when you look at a case graph, they barely even look like spikes. The current third spike during which we're seeing even 140,000 new cases per day makes those early spikes in April and July look like little molehills. And of course, they were major spikes at the time. And uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci warned us about this months ago. Dr. Fauci said you could see 100,000 cases a day in the fall. And when we got to 35,000 in April and they started declining, A lot of people didn't believe Dr. Fauci, but he was right. And if anything, he wasn't aggressive enough because we are seeing one hundred and forty thousand per day. No sign of a slowdown. Deaths are also spiking. We've now had two days in a row with right around fifteen hundred deaths per day. That's a nine eleven every two days. And those numbers are going to go higher. Deaths today, remember, are based on cases two to three weeks ago, two to three weeks ago. We had half the cases that we do today. So in two to three more weeks, we could be seeing twenty five hundred deaths a day. We could be seeing three thousand deaths a day. Not out of the question. We could be seeing a nine eleven every single day right now. Forty nine out of 50 states are increasing in cases. Thirty states set new records just this week. And like I said, hospitalization, there were a couple weeks there where cases were going up, hospitalizations were not yet up. Uh, Hospitalizations have now reached a pandemic high and are clearly going higher since one hundred and forty thousand more people tested positive yesterday and the day before Um, in. I'm trying to think what state it was. I believe it's in one of the Dakotas. Uh, The governor has announced that. Oh, must must be North Dakota because South Dakota is Christy Nome and this was a male governor. I believe it's the governor of North Dakota. I should be more prepared. I'm going from memory, Um, said hospitals are now full and they are going to need nurses to keep working, even if they have coronavirus nurses with coronavirus in again, I believe it's North Dakota have been cleared to keep working even when they test positive because things are that out of control. We need leadership. I know it's easy to say, listen, David, every country is having a spike. Every country is seeing a spike. Remember that many countries are on spike two right now. So when we look at other countries and we see they are also having record numbers, they are having record numbers related to spike number one. Many of those countries suppressed the second spike all summer and they are now getting to the second spike. We're already on spike number three and spike number three is putting spike number two to shame. All these other countries are only now getting to spike number two. And um, when we say everything is spiking, 
understand that we are a I'm not calling them waves because we never really got out of wave one, but spikes. We are a full spike ahead of most of these countries, and it is an absolute and total disaster. CDC now issuing recommendations about Thanksgiving and those recommendations are have Thanksgiving outside. Now, in much of the country, it's not possible. Uh, the Dakotas, Minnesota, northern Michigan, you know, the, it, it gets very, very cold here in Massachusetts. It may well be a high of 30 by the time of Thanksgiving, even though it's been unseasonably warm. So a lot of people I know are either not doing Thanksgiving or they are doing a drastically reduced Thanksgiving. I know a few folks who said we were doing like a six person Thanksgiving. And what we've agreed to do is everybody's getting tested on Monday of Thanksgiving week doing nothing for the rest of the week and assuming we all get negative tests, we'll do an indoor thing, hopefully with windows open, sitting far apart on Thursday. Um, Thanksgiving has the remember, we didn't have Thanksgiving during the pandemic last year and Thanksgiving could be a real super spreader event nationally. Uh, I think I'm doing nothing on Thanksgiving. That's the latest for me. I think I will be reading and uh, catching up on some documentaries that I've been I've been meaning to, but it is looking very, very ugly. Yesterday was Veterans Day, um, a somber day on which we remember those who gave time from their lives to serve in the military. And I, I have said this before. Think what you want about the missions our military is sent on. That's a political issue. And I often disagree with the missions our military is sent on, but I never uh, ignore or miss that we don't have a draft in this country and I didn't have to do any military stuff because enough people volunteered to do it. Now, it's a perfectly fair criticism to say, well, the problem is the people volunteering to do it are not diverse enough in terms of political background and whatever, you know, you, you when, when it's volunteer only, you get a certain type of people in the military. That's a conversation we can have. We can say there are certain folks not well enough represented among the military. The military is preying on uh, people of color. Uh, fine, fine. But I remain thrilled that I didn't have to do anything in the military because enough people are volunteering. So it's a somber day, you know, et cetera. Joe Biden tweeted a message of sober respect, saying, quote, today we honor the service of those who have worn the uniform of the armed forces of the United States to our proud veterans. I will be a commander in chief who respects your sacrifice, understands your service and will never betray the values you fought so bravely to defend. That's Biden. Donald Trump, meanwhile, much like on Veterans Day in years past, made it all about himself. And yesterday it was conspiracy theories about how he really won the election and how he really won the state of Pennsylvania. Trump tweeting, quote, a guy named Al Schmidt, a Philadelphia commissioner and so-called Republican rhino is being used big time by the fake news media to explain how honest things were with respect to the election in Philadelphia. He refuses to look at the mountain of corruption and dishonesty. We win. Now, aside from the again, completely disrespectful nature of Donald Trump doing this on Veterans Day, as a reminder, the closer we get to 100 percent of the Pennsylvania vote being counted, the bigger Joe Biden's lead is actually getting. It recently surpassed 49,000 votes onward and beyond to 50,000 votes, inching closer to Biden winning Pennsylvania by a full percentage point, putting it out of recount territory, but it doesn't matter. Trump doesn't care. Veterans Day. It's about him. It's all about him. Trump also tweeting just before the start of Veterans Day video from Fox News's Laura Ingram show promoting once again voter fraud conspiracy theories. And this really shouldn't surprise us because Donald Trump has never cared about veterans as people. Remember that during his presidency, which will soon be over, Donald Trump cared about using the VA as an example to claim successes. Many times Donald Trump claimed we did veterans choice. In reality, that was Barack Obama's program from 2014. Trump cared about using soldiers as props. Trump even said during the coronavirus pandemic that he continued to meet with military families, gold star families during the pandemic. What a great guy. And he even suggested that it might have been because he continued to meet with Gold Star families 
that he caught coronavirus, maybe from one of them. He actually said that, if you can believe it. So what we're ultimately getting to here is, number one, this is the last Veterans Day on which Donald Trump will do this as president unless he runs in 2024 and wins. But we're not going to really deal with that for the time being. Um, future Veterans Days, I do imagine Trump will continue to tweet. I did more for veterans when I was president than anyone else or something like that. He'll still make it about himself in the future. Uh, but the other thing which we're going to be talking about today and on tomorrow's program is that this entire voter fraud thing that Donald Trump has been pushing, it's working in a few different ways. He has convinced 86 percent of Republicans. We're going to, going to look at the polling tomorrow. Eighty six percent of Republicans now believe Joe Biden is not the legitimate winner of the 2020 election. That's a very serious mind virus for which we seem to have no vaccine. There's no inoculation. I guess critical thinking and education are, are the inoculation. But that is uh, there's a significant dearth of that in the United States. Um, and also privately, the latest news is that Donald Trump knows he doesn't actually have a path to victory uh, through these uh, lawsuits and claims but that he's doing it as theater. And of course, the sick reality of that is there are people who can't afford it who are donating to Donald Trump because they believe maybe their donations will help overturn the results. It's sick and we'll deal with all of that in the next 24 hours. Let me know your thoughts about the Veterans Day fiasco once again for Donald Trump via Twitter, where you can find me at D Pacman. The David Pacman Show at DavidPacman.com. If you love feeding your intellectual curiosity, but you're always struggling to find the time, check out one of my all time favorite apps called Blinkist. Blinkist lets you consume an entire book on your way home from work. They take thousands of popular nonfiction books, condense each one into text or audio that you can get through in just 15 minutes and you get all of the important core ideas and information from that book. It's perfect if you don't have enough time to do all the reading you want to do or if you just want to sample a book before you buy the entire thing. I recently read A Brief History of Time, of course, by the great Stephen Hawking. This is a book that I have been aware of for so long and other things got in the way and it was fantastic to check it out on Blinkist. Blinkist has books on politics, philosophy, science. They have 27 different nonfiction categories and a subscription is only about eight bucks a month and you get access to the entire library. But you can try it totally free and get 25 percent off a subscription when you go to Blinkist.com slash Pacman. That's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Pacman. This episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. One of the things I make a priority on the show is not to perpetuate stigma for things that don't deserve it. We've talked about mental health. We've talked about many things where we should all just be respectful adults, period, and we would be better off. And Blue Chew can increase performance and give you that extra confidence you may be looking for. Bluechew.com, blue like the color blue, is the first chewable with the same FDA approved ingredient as in Viagra and Cialis. It can be taken day or night, even on a full stomach since it's chewable. Blue Chew is prescribed online by licensed doctors. You don't have to go to a doctor's office. You don't have to wait in line at a pharmacy. It ships right to your door in a discreet package. They're made in the USA. And since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, it's cheaper than a pharmacy. And best of all, no more awkwardness. We've got a special deal for our viewers and listeners. Go to bluechew.com. Get your first shipment free when you use our promo code Pacman. That's P A K M A N. Pay just five dollars shipping. That's B L U E chew.com. Promo code Pacman to try it totally free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice. And we thank them for sponsoring the David Pacman Show. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Remember that we're primarily a viewer and listener supported program. If you've just come into our universe over the last week, maybe found the YouTube channel or the audio podcast, you can sign up for a membership and get an extra show every day just for you. Um, at joinpakman.com, we have a coupon code. We're, it's a fresh start now with Joe Biden. 
So the coupon code fresh start you can use to get a beautiful discount off of the membership of your choice at uh, joinpacman.com. This is really funny. Uh, we spoke. Uh, we've been speaking this week and we're going to speak again, in fact, about how the world is increasingly ignoring Donald Trump. Media outlets are focused on the Biden transition. World leaders are welcoming Joe Biden as president elect, despite Donald Trump not having conceded the election. This is just amazing. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who I'm not a fan of politically, to be very clear. Boris Johnson yesterday started referring to Donald Trump as the previous president, even though Donald Trump still does have a couple months left in his presidency, and also said it was refreshing to speak to president elect Joe Biden, which is just perfect and hilarious. And if you if you adjust for British humor and British temperament, talking about it being refreshing to speak to Joe Biden, referring to Trump as the previous president, it's pretty spicy stuff. Uh, let's take a look. And also really funny that the statement from Boris Johnson was in response to a question from Labor MP Angela Eagle. And in her question to Boris Johnson, Angela Eagle couches uh, Trump's refusal to concede as embarrassing and dangerous to American democracy, both accurate, but that's the premise. And nobody even thinks to argue with the premise because, of course, it's accurate. Take a look at this. The prime minister spoke for many of us when he took a call yesterday to congratulate President elect Biden and Vice President elect Harris on their emphatic win in the U.S. presidential election. So does the prime minister now have any advice for his erstwhile best friend, President Trump, whose continuing refusal to accept the result is both embarrassing for him and dangerous for American democracy. Prime Minister. Well, uh, Mr. Speaker, I had uh, and have a good relationship with the previous president. I, I, I do not resolve uh, from that. It is the duty of all British prime ministers to have a good relationship uh, with the White House. Uh, but I'm, I, I'm delighted uh, to find the many areas uh, in which. Uh, the Biden, the incoming Biden uh, Harris administration uh, is able to make common cause with us. It's just hilarious how Donald Trump hasn't even conceded. But in either case, Trump does have the presidency for two more months. And the British prime minister is referring to Trump as the previous president and calling his conversation with the president elect who Trump still has not acknowledged as refreshing. Now, he may not have meant much by it. But it's poetic in that much of the world already is thinking of Trump as the previous president. Trump is doing no presidential things. Trump has not done any actual presidential work for months now. He's been campaigning for months. Now he's sulking in his office, calling allies and friends and seeing can anybody give me any encouraging or good news? And we'll be reporting on that a little bit later based on Philip Rucker's great reporting. But world leaders are just moving on. And I was actually thinking that all of these discussions about could Donald Trump execute a coup? How might Donald Trump execute a coup? All of that, which we've been talking about. I still maintain my position that the answer is a simple no. The latest claims, uh, including from Peter Alexander from NBC, are that if even Trump knows excuse me, even Trump knows that he has no shot at this coup, but that one of the things that will make it even tougher to steal the White House if Trump tried is that the world is already looking at Joe Biden as if he's president. But ultimately, Trump failing to steal the White House will still have a big impact because Trump could still delegitimize Biden in the minds of the Yal Qaeda types, as we call them all over the country, such that they remain angry throughout Biden's presidency. And obviously that carries with it significant risk. I don't think Trump has a master plan. I don't think Trump is some kind of evil genius where he's trying to radicalize his supporters to never acknowledge Biden as the rightful president and maybe even do violence or whatever. I just think Trump doesn't want to lose. But Trump continuing to do this, even if he doesn't believe that there's a shot at overturning the election, which the latest reporting is he doesn't really believe it there could be a significant holdover impact beyond January 20th. And as I referred to earlier, Trump has already convinced 86 percent of his voters that Joe Biden did not legitimately win. That is stunning. And so Trump's plan simply is an ego narcissism plan. It's the same playbook he's used his entire life, never mind his entire presidency. Blame other people, deny that you failed, 
never apologize, never admit defeat, divide people, get people mad and scared and angry, exaggerate everything. That's his plan. But it can have an impact on his followers and world leaders dealing with Biden as president elect is a good thing to push back against that, although it's not like Trump supporters are really willing to see reason right now. And unfortunately, I mean, tragically for the country, many of them are never going to see reason, which is why it's important that Joe Biden do everything he can to just move ahead, appoint adults to positions of power. And that's exactly what Joe Biden announced last night with his chief of staff. And I want to talk about that next. So we're waiting to see who will be in Joe Biden's cabinet. And there have been a variety of different names floated. Some have been denied. Some have not been denied. It's very interesting to look at the way that all goes. And ultimately, we're going to know and we'll do a deep dive about Joe Biden's cabinet. But as is often the case, as a precursor to selecting your cabinet, uh, Joe Biden has selected his chief of staff. This is his first major staff pick. Of course, the vice president, Kamala Harris, a, mo a very important selection, which was made some time ago. But for post election, this is really good news. Um, Ronald Klain is going to be Joe Biden's chief of staff. It's just a great choice. And everybody from Alexandria Ocasio Cortez to centrist Democrats to Democratic consultants, everybody says this is a fantastic choice. And I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Ronald Klain. But when the bar is so, not not that Klain isn't a good choice no matter what. But when the bar is so low already because of Donald Trump, Ronald Klain is an adult who is not only intelligent, but he's organized and he gets things done. That's already going to be much better than the people that Donald Trump has had as chiefs of staff. Ronald Klain also happened to be Barack Obama's Ebola czar during the Obama Biden administration. And if we want to talk about signals, when Joe Biden selects Ronald Klain, it's a signal that he rejects the chaos of the Trump administration. He rejects the idea of these wild, loose cannon, unhinged staffers in a lot of different positions. Ron, I, I'm going to be very upfront. Ronald Klain is going to be a boring chief of staff. He's going to be a, a, a sensible, sober chief of staff. You're not likely to hear a lot from Ronald Klain in terms of cartoonish incidents and scandals and fiascos. And if you're dealing with a pandemic, as Joe Biden is going to be, and unfortunately, because Donald Trump is just done with coronavirus, a very serious pandemic on January 20th. Ronald Klain is also particularly qualified because he has experience dealing with medical outbreaks already. He's a lawyer with a solid legal mind. He has a relatively progressive lean in terms of what you would expect for a president like Joe Biden. And he has the experience that is required at exactly this time. And again, widespread praise uh, a AOC tweeting, quote, Good news and an encouraging choice. Anti-Trump Republican Steve Schmidt, who's not our friend, but but the, the point is everybody recognizes Ronald Klain is a good choice. Uh, Steve Schmidt tweeting looks like the office of chief of staff has just been upgraded by 100 gazillion percent with the appointment of Ronald Klain. Squad member Congresswoman Ayanna Presley tweeting, quote, having a dedicated, humble, hardworking team around you is everything. Congratulations, Ronald Klain. Encouraged to see you step into this role and look forward to working together. Senator Elizabeth Warren tweeting Ronald Klain is a superb choice for chief of staff. He understands the magnitude of the health and economic crisis, and he has the experience to lead this next administration through it. Ron has earned trust all across the entire Democratic Party. I think you get it in Washington. You rarely see such unified and nearly unanimous reaction to any choice for any position ever, no matter how qualified the person is. He was on the ball. Uh, Ronald Klain was in terms of coronavirus. He wrote back in January, uh, nearly 11 months ago, a piece in The Atlantic where he said uh, or, or the piece was called coronavirus is coming and Trump isn't ready. And he explained the ways in which Donald Trump was not ready. So eventually we're going to be doing a deep dive. Uh, on Joe Biden's cabinet as it comes together, expecting some names around Thanksgiving time. But for now, the person who will be helping Biden choose the cabinet is as close to a perfect selection as there could be and contrast it with Donald Trump's latest chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who has been running around Trump rallies with no mask, high fiving people. Uh, Mark Meadows caught coronavirus. Mark Meadows continued to insist that Donald Trump would win. 
even though Donald Trump lost and said weeks ago, we are not going to control the pandemic in what was arguably the most defeatist statement we've heard from any administration official about the pandemic since the start. So change is very much in the air. I don't expect to agree with every cabinet choice Joe Biden makes, but so far, this is exactly what you would want to see. Now, let me say one other thing. There have been I've been getting a lot of emails from from people linking me to articles, some articles saying Warren and Bernie are being considered for cabinet positions and other articles saying Warren and Bernie are being frozen out of consideration for cabinet positions uh, with so many rumors floating around and so many cabinet positions and so much else to talk about. I don't think there's much value in me commenting on speculation about Biden's cabinet. Uh, when Biden chooses his cabinet, we will do a deep dive. We will analyze every single cabinet member. Some of you will find it boring. Some of you will find it valuable. I think it's very important. And we are, we are going to do that to, to sort of set up our understanding of the Biden administration as it comes in. Um, one of the things I think is important to think about uh, is that when you select Democratic senators to your cabinet, their Senate seats open. Different states have different rules about who and how gets to decide on their replacement. Here in Massachusetts, we have a Republican governor currently, and as at least as an interim replacement to uh, Elizabeth Warren until there's a special election, that may mean a Republican senator uh, replaces Elizabeth Warren. In Vermont, I actually don't know offhand exactly uh, how, how it goes, but while I obviously believe that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders would be fantastic cabinet selections. Bernie could be secretary of labor. There's other positions he could do. Elizabeth Warren could be secretary of education, treasury secretary. You know, you could make an argument for either of them as secretary of commerce. There's no doubt that these are qualified people. I do. Th and, I, and I don't pretend to have an answer to this question. It is it's not rhetorical. It's a real question. Are we better served by keeping Bernie and Warren, the two most progressive members of the Senate right now in the Senate? I think that that's a completely legitimate question to be asking. And given that you could pick people that are arguably as good or almost as good as them for cabinet positions, although maybe they would be less recognizable in terms of name recognition. Do we gain more by keeping them in the Senate? I think that almost certainly if Warren and Bernie leave the Senate to be in Biden's cabinet, it's a guarantee that the Senate moves to the right. When you take the two most liberal members of the Senate and you replace them with people that are arguably and almost certainly less liberal, the average political orientation of the Senate moves a little bit to the right. And I think that that's a perfectly legitimate and important thing to be talking about. And we will discuss it. If Democratic senators do make it into Biden's cabinet, we will talk about it. If they don't and there are complaints, where is Bernie? Where is Warren? We will also talk about it. A, a completely um, a fundamental understanding of the reality of what happens when you take a Democratic senator out, uh, what happens to that seat in the immediate and also in the medium to long term when there is a special election. We'll have more about Ronald Klain and Biden's cabinet on our Instagram page. Follow us there at David Pakman Show. And listen, if you're already on Instagram, follow me at David.Pakman as well. The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com. Privacy.com is one of our sponsors, and they're giving you $5 just for using their free service at privacy.com slash Pacman. Privacy is a service I've been using for a while now. I love it. It saves me a bunch of headaches. It's completely free, and it's very quick to set up. And here's how it works. When you pay for something online or over the phone, instead of exposing your real credit card number, privacy lets you generate virtual card numbers. The payments are withdrawn from your checking account, but your real card number stays completely private and you do it all with one click. You can autofill the card number in your web browser on the phone. You can create 12 virtual cards a month. You can set spending limits, freeze them, delete them whenever you want. I especially love it for free trials where you need to give a credit card number because I can destroy the virtual card number as soon as I give it to the company and I know I won't be charged in the future. 
If you're ordering food over the phone, why do I need to give a restaurant my real card number? If I don't have to companies don't have to know who you are. Your real credit card number is protected from the data breaches that happen unfortunately more often than we would like. And it's completely free. They do have a paid version with different tiers where you can create more virtual credit card numbers per month, cashback rewards, extra security features. But go ahead and sign up for the free service. It's a no brainer. Companies can't charge you unexpectedly. You're protected from identity theft. It costs you nothing. And privacy is giving you $5 to spend just for signing up when you go to privacy.com slash Pacman. If you are anything like me, you probably aren't thrilled with the idea of going into a doctor's office right now. And thankfully, there is a practical and affordable way to take control of your health and get personalized care from the comfort of your home. It's a service called Steady MD. They're one of our sponsors. You take a quiz, you get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your health needs. You have a one hour video call with your new doctor. You establish a meaningful relationship with them. And after that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone or video chat. This is not a random doctor on call. Each doctor at Steady MD has a limited number of patients, so they actually have time to listen to you. You get the personal attention that you deserve. They can do almost everything an in-person doctor can do, perform medical evaluations, talk to you about health concerns, send prescriptions to your home or local pharmacy and anything they can't do online. They'll quickly set you up with an in-person provider to do things like blood tests. As an example, you don't need insurance. It's only ninety nine bucks a month with no other fees or copays. There are so many practical advantages to using steady MD for primary care, and it's also so much more affordable. Go to steadymd.com slash Pacman to take the free quiz and see which doctor is right for you. I took their quiz. They matched me with a doctor who specializes in my particular health needs. The doctor they gave me is a really perfect fit for me. Again, that's steadymd.com slash Pacman. There's no risk, no commitment to get started. That's S T E A D Y M D dot com forward slash P A K M A N. Welcome back to the David Pakman Show. It's great to be joined today by Nick Majuli, who's the COO at Ritholtz Wealth Management and also founder of Dollars and Data, a data focused personal finance blog. I've been reading Nick's articles for a long time. It's great to have you on, Nick. Hey, thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. So, okay, I, to, to start with, I want to talk about um, the Biden tax plan a little bit and what the implications would be, how likely it is to happen. But before we even get into that, as a general principle, when we look at the stock market based on presidential terms, my personal analysis is that the stock market tends to return a higher uh, tends to see a higher return under Democratic presidents than Republican presidents. It's not an overwhelming difference. So the first question is, is that distinction relevant to presidential policy? I do not think it is. I think most of that stuff, when you really look at the data, there's a lot of noise in there. And, and there was like, obviously, you're right that you know Democratic presidents tend to have a slightly higher return. Um, but it's also kind of biased by certain things. You know, you think about uh, Hoover and he was like in Great Depression. So that kind of messes things up. You think about it, you know, which time period you want to use. Clinton probably had the best returns ever. Right? And that was the 90s. So like there's all these outliers that kind of move things around a little bit. Um, and of course, presidents do affect policy, which affects markets. I don't think it's as linked as we think. I think it's probably a lot more noise, unfortunately. Would it be fair to say then that the argument you sometimes hear from the right that the stock market is a disaster during Democratic presidents, that certainly isn't true. Yeah, I don't think that's true. I think that the same is also true on the other side. I don't think it's a disaster during Democratic. I think that's all just, you know, political talk coming out. One of the interesting things that you write in your recent article about the Biden tax plan is that there certainly is an impact on one's 
personal finances and net worth from presidents, but that it often has much more to do with tax policy than it does with the ups and downs of the stock market. And that's a really important thing to understand. So when you start looking at what the economy might be like from a personal finance standpoint, are you focusing actually more on tax policy than expected stock stock market movement? Yeah, I mean, for well, like for for you and I and for most people, like what how tax policy changes is going to affect the dollars coming into your accounts and how much dollars you have to pay out to the government. And that's going to have a much bigger impact than, you know, how the market might necessarily react. And of course, you know, it's, it's one of these things where you can't really know, but I know tax policy for sure changes people's decisions and behavior in a much bigger way than I think just minor moves in the stock market will. So let's talk a little bit about the Biden tax plan. Uh, what when we did a dive into it a few weeks ago, some of the notable things were the change to the corporate uh, income tax rate going from 21 to 28 percent, repealing mm-hmm. the Trump tax cuts. And you would see long term cap gains rates go from about 24 to close to 40 percent. You'd see that top marginal tax rate go up. I think it's about three points to the pre Trump era. And then and then very importantly, right now, Social Security taxes stop at about one hundred and thirty thousand dollars in income, roughly. I don't I know that's not exactly right. The Biden proposal would then reinstate that twelve point four percent tax from four hundred thousand dollars and up completely uncapped, which, if done, is a massive amount of revenue for for the government to start with. Is it accurate that those under four hundred thousand dollars a year in income will not see an increase, which has been a big topic of political debate? They should not see an increase in income tax. Now, there are if everything in the plan went through, there are certain ways in which, for example, if you're getting property, if you're inheriting property, you may have to pay taxes on that if there's unrealized gains that you wouldn't have had to pay in the you know, in the in the current state of the world. So. No income tax is going to be increased on those people, but you might see um, other types of taxes show up given other life events. As I said, if you're inheriting property specifically, that's one that's going to be very uh, relevant. And with that property inheritance scenario, is that based on the size of the estate or it could be regardless of the size of the estate? Uh, So. So there's a little bit of both. So the estate tax right now um, allows for 11 point million, 11.6 million per single person or. 23.2 23.2 for a couple. You can pass on, you know, no estate tax. Um, and then there's also something called stepped up basis. What that means is, let's say, you know, your grandparents had, a, you know, a stock and they bought Apple in like, you know, 1995 or whatever, and now it's got, you know, a million dollars in gains. They can, when they die, they can pass that on to their heirs. No taxes owed on the gain. But if they get rid of that rule, anyone, regardless of who you are, you get that you're going to have to pay the tax on the difference there. And that's also true of real estate, among other things. Now, I don't think that's actually going to pass. There's a lot. I've talked to a lot of tax professionals about this. So like, yeah, there's no way stepped up basis is going to be completely gotten rid of because it's a very complex thing. I think the reason they use it to get rid of stepped up basis is because it's just simpler not to have to track how you improved a real estate property for over 40 years and every single home repair and then try and track the basis of that is a nightmare for for the IRS and for individuals. So that's why they just kind of wipe it clean. It's just a little bit easier that way. So I, I want to talk about the likelihood of any of these different things passing. Now, to, to even start that conversation, if Democrats don't take uh, control of the Senate with a 50 50 tie by getting the two Georgia runoffs, having Kamala Harris as the tie breaking vote, does any of this stuff pass or is this all I mean, is, is tax reform even getting done without a Democratic Senate? Yeah. So I don't think it's going to get to, I mean, even if they pass it. So remember, here's the here's the thing. Even if they do get, you know, they win the two Georgia Senate races. Um, Kamala Harris, you know, uh, cast a tie-breaking vote, you still have to, like, argue for all these things. This is like the wish list. All these different things are the wish list. But what's going to happen is they're going to go back and forth with Republicans. And even there's going to be some Democrats that say, I don't want to eliminate this or I don't want to do this. So this is really like the best case scenario just to start. And they're going to bargain and some of these things are going to come and go. And I think, for example, stepped-up basis will probably be one of the things, if I had to guess, that gets kicked out. So, um, so yeah. for now, still continuing in the scenario where Democrats do have the Senate, but there's negotiation. Yep. I have a really hard time imagining that Social Security will be uncapped from four hundred thousand and up. And and the reason I say that without making any moral judgment about it is that is millions and tens of millions of dollars in taxes for for a lot of people. And of course, part of it can be avoided by not earning income through wages. And we know about the way that that, that can be done. 
I don't know how that gets passed, even the Democratic Senate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, yeah, you're right in terms of talking about people will just, okay, immediately companies like, okay, your new salary cap is $400,000 and we're going to pay you all this equi- extra equity income or this extra thing. They're going to find ways to get money to you in ways that are not uh, classified as labor income. Now, I think some people are probably still just going to take the hit and like, okay, you know, the employers take 6%, I have to pay 6%, whatever. But yeah, a lot of people are going to shift salaries around and there's gonna be like, oh, I, there's gonna be the 400 K club out there <laughs> to promise that. So what's the most reliable way I, I have sometimes financial advisors who will write to me or they'll call into my show and they'll say, you know, we already know that just increase increasing income tax rates is not a great way to capture um, necessarily more revenue because a lot of really wealthy people are not earning through wages. So then you've got to maybe look at capital gains. But then there's also different ways to avoid paying capital gains taxes, or you can always just kind of wait it out because with capital gains, a lot of it has to do with when are you realizing the gain? And if you don't like what you would pay now, you can wait for a different administration in your experience. Like if the government was determined, we want to capture more of the different types of income that people are making. What would be the most sort of ironclad way to do it? I don't. That's a great question. I think this is the question that's like everyone's trying to figure out how do you curb inequality, really? That's really the question. How do you curb inequality? And someone's like, okay, we can just raise capital gains. Like, well, let's say, you know, let's say, the, you know, the probability of the, this whole thing happening where, you know, Democrats take over the Senate, we let's say it's like a 95% chance. Right now, I predict it's putting it like 24, 25%. So there's a one in four chance right now. Let's say it was 95%. What you're going to see is people are going to start realizing the gains now. They're going to start going through. There was even this thing where in 2010, I think the estate tax was like zero and a surprisingly large number of people happened to die that year. So it's like people will literally change their lives and somehow just accept the grave to avoid taxes. So I don't know what's the best way to do that. I wish I had a better answer for you. Like you can do things like that. People have tried wealth taxes, but that's like on the really, really, you know, rich people. But that's tough. Like, how do you determine wealth? How do you, you know, capture that? How prevent people from fleeing? There's all sorts of ways to get at this. I think it's really difficult. I mean, capital gains is a start, but it uh, depends how big the jump is. I mean, 23.8 to 39.6% is a big jump, and that's going to change people's behavior if that were to happen. So then going to the next scenario, which is Democrats don't get the Senate, is there any tax reform getting done in the next two years if Democrats don't get the Senate? I don't think so. I think we're going to be in gridlock. I mean, I'm obviously not an expert at that thing, but I, I don't see how it's going to happen. How you know Republicans, if they can prevent it from happening, they're happy with what's going on right now. So I think we'll just have more of the same. So for the average person who makes an average salary, maybe has access to some kind of matching contribution if they're in education. Maybe it's a 403b or a 401k. Uh, you know, with with our staff, we do a simple IRA. Average person, average, you know, nor, normal person. Does it make any sense to be making any changes to what you are doing on the basis of who is in the White House? Uh, I would say no, definitely not. I mean, as going back to kind of our earlier discussion, like, you know, markets rise, markets fall under any sort of president. You can look through history like they have drawdowns, 20, 30 percent drawdowns, almost every single president um, and markets go up during almost every president. I mean, there's obviously exceptions, when, you know, but I don't think it's the president's fault that, you know, oh, we have hyperinflation or oh, we have this or that, like. I don't think it's necessarily always the president's fault for that type of thing. You know, even when FDR took over in the Great Depression, like initially, like there was a lot of hope, but still the economy was sluggish for a while and then finally got back together. So when the uh, coronavirus uh, in when the initial coronavirus dip happened in sort of like mid-March, the Internet was riddled with hot takes about sell now or buy more options or wait, buy back in in a month, this sort of stuff. Now, my view, having read everything from Ben Graham 100 years ago and understanding what Warren Buffett's perspective is and the great Jack Bogle and so on and so forth, my view has always been I don't think I can time the market. I don't think I'm slick enough. I've got a full time job and understanding that each year a huge portion of the gain comes from a very small number of trading days. And if you're timing, you could miss one of those days and miss out on a lot of the return for a particular year, not to mention there are tax implications to buying and selling, et cetera. Are there exceptions to that where it makes sense to either try to time the market based on the news cycle or legislatively or or in any other way? 
I would generally say no. I would never try to do something like that. There are certain quantitative models that use sort of a trend following to look at like 200 day moving averages and that, but I don't want to get into all the technicality of that. There are some that do it. And even those, like a lot of those models, which traditionally have worked for the last 20 years, failed during COVID because it was such a quick decline and it came back so quickly. That quick V recovery that the models had never seen anything like that and so they weren't they didn't have any data to prepare for that to jump back in so you see a lot of people that are actually the best in the business at trend following you know got a little bit burned this year unfortunately um but that's kind of that's what happens you know it's just that's that's the nature of markets so briefly just talking about corporate tax now as we've been talking all about kind of kind of personal financial um, there's this idea again in the Biden tax plan of raising the corporate income tax rate from 21 to 28 percent. Now, a lot of small business owners, including me, uh, set up as an S corporation. All of our income is passed through. In other words, the, the business itself is paying some stat to quote Donald Trump, some statutory amount, which I think in <laughs> Massachusetts is, is like four hundred and fifty dollars or something like that. And then basically I'm getting a K one as an owner and I'm paying tax on my personal income taxes. So the corporate tax rate, I don't don't believe actually affects me. So it's kind of a two part question. Are small businesses affected by the corporate tax rate? Who really is affected by that? Yeah, so that's that it depends. I mean, it really you're right. There's a lot, a lot of income, especially amongst, you know, uh, higher income families is coming through partnerships and smaller businesses, not necessarily like, you know, corporate tax is going to be for, I think, much larger businesses. So it will affect certain people. But I think, as you said, a lot of people have smaller businesses. They use pass throughs, a lot of law firms or pass throughs or partnerships, things like that. So it's going to affect some people um, and it'll probably affect the stock market in some way if that were to come to pass, because obviously corporate tax means, you know, less profits. So just simple as that. So, um, but yeah, as, once again, this is how likely is this as of right now? It doesn't seem too likely. One of the things that's never made sense to me, and I've asked a lot of economists about this, you hear this talking point from businesses. If you raise the corporate tax rate, it will be bad for the economy and it will be bad in general because businesses won't invest in growing their business. To me, it seems completely counterintuitive because if I'm a business owner and I can take profits at a 20 percent tax rate or take profits at a 30 percent tax rate, avoiding a 30 percent tax seems like something I would be more inclined to do. And the way you avoid tax, of course, is by making capital investments. So if you apply a demand side approach, wouldn't a higher corporate tax rate encourage investment in a business because you're incentivized to avoid what is a higher rate of tax? Yeah, I mean, you, that's one way to look at it. Um, the, you can also say like, OK, well, if my taxes, some, you know, who doesn't want like, do you want you get a, you want 70 cents? Do you want 80 cents? Like, OK, I'll, I'll take 70 cents. You're going to give it to me. Right. So like, you're still making money either way. Um, I do think the logic for that argument is correct, but it has to be at a much higher rate. I think going 21 to 28, it's like, where are you on the curve? That's always the question. This is the big debate. Like if we went from obviously 21 to 100, you can see obviously that that would completely devastate business. Like there's yes. no debate there. But where is that? How big is it? Measuring that, that's really the crux of the argument. And people argue on both sides. And I think you know, if it was clear, we would just know it. We, we, we wouldn't be debating it. That's the problem. A lot of these debates, the reason they're debates is because it's not clear cut in the data. And if it was clear cut, we just wouldn't debate it anymore. I think that's kind of how this works. Yeah. And there's a lot of I, I think there's a lot of bad faith actors on both sides with these issues <laughs> that want to create edge cases that nobody's arguing for. Like, for example, people against the fifteen dollar minimum minimum wage will often say, well, if 15 is better because people have more money, what about one hundred and fifty? And of course, nobody's talking about one fifty. One fifty wouldn't be an equilibrium wage. One fifty would not be a, a wage that's in line with cost of living. And I, I'm wondering if you also think that to really discuss this stuff, we have to eliminate these kind of straw man edge cases and think about the, the meat of the curve as you're talking about, not the extremes. Yeah, I don't think you can use exceptions to make to try and make rules or argue rules. It's really tough. There are obviously for example, one of the biggest things in the investment literature is this whole idea of the black swan. It's like, oh, you look at this average distribution and the exception is the most important thing because the exception changes everything. So I kind of agree with some of that logic sometimes, but sometimes it's also a straw man. So it, when are you talking about it? Are you talking about it in a risk context? Are you talking about it in a minimum wage context? Obviously, yeah, like why not 150? Because that makes obviously no sense. Like there's too many jobs where the equilibrium wage is just far too low compared to you know, 150 an hour. So I, I completely see both sides of it. Um, but yeah, I agree that you should try to like, where's the meat of the distribution? I think that's a good way of looking at it. 
We've been speaking with Nick Majuli, who is COO at Ritholtz Wealth Management, also founder of of Dollars and Data. I might have missed one of the ofs. You're founder of of Dollars and Data, a personal finance blog that I subscribe to. Nick, really appreciate your time and, and having you on. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it, David. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. I want to let you know that our sponsor, Vincero Watches, is having a massive holiday sale on all of their products right now, and you can take advantage of it by going to davidpakman.com slash watch. A brand new high quality wristwatch really is the perfect way to add something fresh to your style, whether it's for you or a gift for someone else. Vincero is a brand that has a serious dedication to the craft of watchmaking, which is really evident when you look closely at their watches. I wear Vincero watches myself. Lately, I've been wearing one from their Icon Automatic collection. It's the mesh matte black watch, and I love the sleek, minimalist design. Their watches are actually sold at a fair price. Their mission has always been to make a wristwatch from high end materials, but one that everyday people can afford. And that's why they have over twenty five thousand five star reviews, because you won't find a better made watch for this great of a price anywhere else. You can get big holiday discounts on all of their products right now and free shipping when you go to davidpackmancom slash watch. I've put the link in the podcast notes. The David Pakman Show at davidpackman.com. So Donald Trump's press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, has uh, humiliated herself again, maybe for the last time if Fox News stops having her on. Although my sense is she'll still continue humiliating herself for a couple more months. Uh, Kaylee McEnany does this thing which is completely absurd. It's, It's absurd in like an evil genius way which is she has different personas. Sometimes Kaylee McEnany is White House press secretary speaking in her official role as White House press secretary. Sometimes she is a Trump campaign senior advisor, and then sometimes she's just a private person. And uh, I, I know that this may be difficult for a lot of folks who expect logic and reason to understand. But when Kaylee does her press briefings, which she hasn't done in a very long time, that's very clear. She is White House press secretary, very clear cut, speaking to us as the representative for Donald Trump. Now, just before the election, she started appearing on Fox News pretty frequently under a different title. And you would see under her name, it would say Trump 2020 senior advisor. It's already weird because she's officially a White House staffer. And then last week at that completely ridiculous press conference where she said it was all stolen, Biden didn't win anything, Trump won everything and held up pieces of paper. She said, hi, I'm I'm Kaylee McKenney. I'm here in my personal capacity. It's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, that that sort of thing. Well, this morning, Kaylee shows up on Fox News and you just have to see this. First of all, I guess in order to try to keep things kosher from the standpoint of the Hatch Act, Brian Kilmeade actually says Kaylee has two roles. And today she's here not as press secretary, but as a campaign person. Take a look. Kaylee McEnany joins us. She's got a dual role here. She's on as the Trump 2020 campaign advisor. Uh, Kay- so it's it's almost like Brian Kilmeade was told, make sure to mention this. And you I mean, I I don't know how you tell the difference. Maybe when she wears her diamond cross necklace, she's there as press secretary. And when she wears her gold cross necklace, that's when she's the campaign advisor, sort of like Superman. When he has the glasses on, it's Clark Kent. When the glasses come off, it's Superman. I don't know, but it's all wacky. But then this is where it gets just beyond satire. Brian Kilmeade says, you know, Joe Biden isn't getting the presidential daily briefing. Uh, He did win. It's a national security issue. And Kaylee says, no, that's a question for the White House. She is the White House spokesperson as press secretary. But today we have to pretend she's a different character. She's merely a lowly campaign advisor. Check this out. It's wild. The Republican, he said, listen, give Joe Biden a presidential daily brief. After all, Senator uh, Harris gets gets she's on the intel committee. She's getting uh, she has high uh, high level security access. Has the president considered that? 
Um, I haven't spoken to the president about that. Um, that would be a question um, more for the White House, but I will say that all laws are being followed um, with regard to an expected um, transition, though we expect to continue on um, as the Trump administration. <clears throat> we will see um, how our litigation goes. When we say um, how stupid do they think we are? They think their followers and Fox News viewers are very stupid. And this is indistinguishable from parody. And even though we've already heard that Trump knows he can't win and he's doing this entire thing as theater and, you know, taking money from people in doing so, Kaylee McKenney will not close the door on Donald Trump pushing for Republican legislators to try to essentially invalidate the election results by selecting Trump electors. This is the Electoral College strategy we talked about about six weeks ago. And the idea is take a state that Biden won by the popular vote, like, for example, Wisconsin, because Biden won. What they're supposed to do is send Biden electors uh, to cast their official electoral votes for Joe Biden. But if you can find a state with a state legislature that is Republican that might be willing to just interfere. Theoretically, the state legislature could send Trump electors, even though Joe Biden wins the popular vote in that state. That's what they're asking about here. And Kaylee McKenney won't rule it out. Controlled uh, state legislatures would then, because they would not be certified, would then appoint pro-Trump electors who would swing the Electoral College in his favor. It's unclear exactly how seriously the campaign is taking that. How seriously is the campaign considering that? Well, constitutionally, that is an accurate argument. It is the state legislatures that choose the electors. But right now, uh, they're zeroed in completely on litigation. And the so there she is not ruling it out. We, we might discuss that more. I've already talked about it. Uh, and, and of course, no good Trump voter fraud segment would be complete until somebody holds up papers for the camera and Kaylee McKenney also doing that fix their ballot. So we have a number of affidavits from voters who were not told to fix their ballot while their Democrat counterparts in seven counties were. So that's Kaylee McKenney, a Trump campaign staffer, not there. Yeah, I know you. I know she's White House press secretary. She wasn't there as White House press secretary. So when she was asked questions about Trump that she doesn't want to answer, she says, oh, that would be a question for the White House, like maybe for the White House press secretary, which is her. These are wild times that we are living through. I am very ready for it to end. And we're getting closer. We're getting closer. And even Donald Trump seems to be acknowledging that we've already discussed that Donald Trump uh, privately knows he can't win tomorrow. I'll have a more detailed report on that for you. The, the report from Peter Alexander is that Trump realizes that he has no path to overturning the results of the election, but he's doing it as theater, the lawsuits, the fights, the uh, uh, seeking and receiving financial contributions. It's theater. But how is Donald Trump really doing? The speculation, of course, is that Donald Trump is clearly damaged and triggered. He's barely been seen in public since losing. He did one press briefing last week where he took no questions, simply saying I won. He briefly showed up yesterday at a wreath laying ceremony for Veterans Day. And because we know about Donald Trump's narcissism and being a sore loser and egomaniac, never apologizing, never admitting defeat, one would imagine that Donald Trump is not taking this particularly well. Well, The Washington Post, Philip Rucker, was on MSNBC yesterday and he's covered this White House really well for years. He has a number of uh, uh, of sources inside the Trump administration. And Philip Rucker says that the reality is Trump is quite fragile emotionally right now. Take a listen to this. Don't think it'll come as a surprise to anybody. We haven't heard from the president this week. We saw him today. What's your reporting on where he is on his personal journey? Well, Brian, his emotional state is quite fragile. We've not seen or heard from the president in several days, with the exception of this morning on a rainy day in Washington. He went out to Arlington uh, National Cemetery to lay a wreath uh, in observance of Veterans Day. Uh, but he has not been doing much uh, governing, as best we can tell. He's actually fighting hard to keep a job that he doesn't seem uh, content to do at the moment. 
Uh, rather, he's been lighting up the phones from the White House. He's been calling uh, friends, advisors, allies uh, in, in what one official describes to my colleagues, Ashley Parker, Josh Stassi, and myself, uh, as a search for good news. He's just casting about for somebody to tell him something good uh, so he can hold on to hope that he might still win this election, uh, even though the the reality, the numbers are, are clearly against him. And, and he's starting to recognize that so much so that he's talking about running again uh, in 2024, which if he held on to any uh, any sense that he was that these election results were going to be overturned and he would be declared the victor, then he would not be talking about a 2024 campaign. Uh, but here we are. That that is what he's talking about uh, these last few days. So it, it all makes sense. Quite fragile, barely leaving the White House, doing no governing, calling people, searching for good news to see if anybody might give him some good news and thinking about running again in 2024. So I guess Trump's feelings are hurt. But remember, it's their side that always says facts don't care about your feelings. Isn't it time to buck up and accept the facts? And this isn't just Trump. This is the entire uh, right and say that he lost. They lost. That's it. And there were I, I saw this hilarious tweet yesterday. Who was it? That's it was like a both sides thing. Oh, it, it was uh, Howard Kurtz, who I think now does like a media analysis show on Fox News, which is hilarious in principle. But Howard Kurtz tweeted both sides. See, and on one side, you had Trump alleging that he really won and then and refusing to uh, allow the Biden transition to officially start. And then the example of the left was that a Whoopi Goldberg, I guess, said Trump Trump supporters have to suck it up, saying, look, both sides. Hold, hold on a second. One side is the current administration refusing to accept that they lost a presidential election and interfering with the president elect's transition. That's one side. What you're comparing it to to say both sides are doing it is Whoopi Goldberg saying random Trumpists should just accept that Trump lost. Both sides. Give me a break. And I, I was again reminded of that right wing refrain. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts, guys. Trumpists are going to need to suck it up and accept the fact that Donald Trump lost. And at the same time, at some point, Trump is going to have to accept that Joe Biden is president of the United States. It could take months into Biden's presidency before Donald Trump accepts it. Now, I do want to talk about one other thing. I've not heard a lot of discussion about this. We do have a national security vulnerability right now that has developed. The reality is that Donald Trump really hasn't been doing his job as president for a long time, punted on coronavirus. He's almost exclusively been campaigning for months. There really hasn't been a president for a while. But we now have a more acute national security issue because Trump is doing no work. Trump reportedly hasn't been even receiving his presidential daily briefing. And when Trump was getting the PDB, he didn't pay attention. He didn't read it. Sometimes he would get distracted by a TV with Fox News in the back of the room. But Donald Trump is also not allowing the uh, president elect Joe Biden to start receiving the presidential daily briefing. Now, ideally, normally in every other transition, the president is getting the presidential daily briefing and the president elect also starts getting it. And that way you have a smooth transition. When Joe Biden comes into office on January 20th, he's aware and up to speed about everything that's going on, terrorism, national security threats, etc. We have a situation right now where for at least two months, no one is really getting the presidential daily briefing. Trump is president. He's not getting it. Biden is president elect. He's not getting it. And on top of this, we have the report from Philip Rucker that Donald Trump's emotional state is quite fragile right now. So if you're a rogue nation, if you're an adversary, if you're an enemy, if you're a terrorist organization, you know there is a window of vulnerability here for the next two months and maybe for some period after as Joe Biden gets settled and gets up to speed on everything. The U.S. is likely more vulnerable than usual. This is an invitation to do bad things, for lack of a better term. It is globally known. You need no sources. You don't need to eavesdrop on anything. It is globally known that right now, there's a total absence of leadership on national security. Nobody's getting the PDB at the highest levels of government. Anyone who would want to do us harm can just turn on TV and realize what's going on. Very disturbing, all because of Donald Trump's fragile ego and lack of willingness to formally admit defeat and sign off on Joe Biden starting to get the presidential daily briefing. It's disgusting. 
I got a voicemail today um, at two one nine two David P asking about impending Trump pardons. Take a listen. Hey, David, this is Jeff from Colorado. Yes. Uh, now that uh, Biden is one, uh, presumptively one, um, I think you've said in the past that you think Trump will probably be pardoning all sorts of uh, his criminal friends. And I'm wondering uh, two things, I guess. What else do you think he's going to do in this lame duck period? And in particular, do you think he's going to pardon himself? Okay, so the, uh, I, at this point, there is no doubt that Donald Trump is going to pardon a bunch of his criminal friends. The stuff about, you know, Trump resigning so Pence can pardon him preemptively. I, I don't think it's hugely likely, but that's partially because it, it would be such a crazy event. Um, it, it's certainly conceivable that it could happen. I think there's a good chance Trump does what he's been doing for the last week for the rest of his term, which is nothing. And Michael Cohen, his former lawyer, said he thinks Trump will leave the White House for the Christmas holiday and just never go back to D.C., um, that he won't be at Biden's inauguration. I don't know, but there is no doubt that the pardoning is going to happen well, of other people, of other people, Trump pardoning all sorts of people. We have a great bonus show for you today. Make sure to get instant access by grabbing a membership at joinpacman.com. 